that river wasn't even that wide. Just like your fate is so different depending on which side of river you are born into. From my side of river, I saw these uh, children in China. They were really, really well fed. And I could smell these noodles and barbecue they were doing. And also, you know, at night, I was able to see uh, this like electricity from China. Just wondered what would that be, what, what the life would be like in that light, where the lights were. Yeonmi Park grew up in the darkest place on Earth, North Korea. She was living next to the river separating her country from China. Yeonmi fled North Korea at the age of 13, crossing the partly frozen Yalu River into China in 2007. It took her two years to reach the long-awaited freedom in South Korea. Today she lives in the United States, she is an internationally known human rights activist and a leading voice of oppressed people worldwide. She also wrote a book, In Order to Live, about her experiences and her escape from North Korea. Hello, this is the I Bounce Back podcast and your host, Indre. It's such an honor to have Yeonmi on today's episode. But before we begin, let me quickly thank today's sponsors. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And be sure to add our podcast in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. And now it's time for Yonmi's story. This is episode 14, Yonmi Park Escaping the Darkest Place on Earth. Oh, first of all, I'm so honored to be on your podcast and thank you so much for your care for North Korean people and uh, my journey to freedom. Um, I mean, you know, I'm coming from a country where it is like almost considered to be a different planet. Uh, most of people, you know, call it Hermit Kingdom. Uh, and uh, I, as you said, I escaped when I was 13 and I was sold uh, as a child bride uh, to Chinese men for less than $300. And now I'm in America where a fancy dinner actually can't even cost for, you know, that much. And the phone that I have in my hand is way more expensive than the price that I was when I was 13. So it's definitely not easy after the escape. You somehow have to find a way to make sense out of all that experience and also have to reconcile with the world that I'm living in. You know, sometimes it's like I also wonder how this is possible in under the same sky, in the same planet that we are on. The lives can be this dramatically different because of your birthplace. Yeah, that's true. And 
If we go back to your childhood and your life before the escape, how would you describe your childhood in North Korea? Obviously, that was the only thing that you knew and probably everything that would be shocking to an outsider looked completely normal to you. Yeah, so I was born in end of 1993 in the northern part of North Korea. It's a city called Hesan. And when I was born there, I had no clue that I was living in a country that was so out of uh, ordinary for the rest of the world. Obviously, I had no idea that my country was uh, isolated. And I was singing the songs like, uh, you know, named like Nothing to Envy. The government made us to sing to like, you know, saying that we had nothing to envy in this world. And I just had no clue that how how unfortunate we were that we were, you know, being enslaved by dictator, but rather we were just so brainwashed to think that we are so lucky that we were living in a socialist paradise and we had our dear leader to defend us from the evil Westerner like a capitalist. That's incredible. You have mentioned that when you finally reached South Korea, your knowledge equaled elementary school knowledge. What kind of things did you learn in North Korean schools then? Yeah, I mean, that was really, even my knowledge equaled elementary school was even like overestimating. The elementary kids knew more than what I knew when I went South Korea as a teenager. But the things that I learned in North Korea was you know the in school curriculum like 95 percent of importance is learning about the revolution uh history of the dear leaders uh they don't teach us about the big bang or physics i mean i'm sure they teach but my case i didn't learn that much of it and most of the time what i learned was uh how our dear leaders could make miracles how they fought our enemies, like, you know, American bastards and Japanese imperialists, and how they were bravely saved us and freed us from this uh, American and Japan aggression. So that was the things that I had to memorize all the time and study really, really hard. And that is why uh, when I escaped, I had no clue how many continents uh, in this world. I never actually seen the map of the world. I never knew how the earth looked like the globe. So I had no idea like where you are right now, Brewster. I did not know where, where that was. And I'm in Chicago right now. I never heard of Chicago. I never knew what Africa was. I just did not know how many race that humans had. And just none of it. It's just all about the dear leaders, the greatness of them, and what kind, you know, how they can move the mountains, how they can show one in the east and to the west in one second. Like, it is just all about propaganda that I learned in school. That's insane. Like, uh, I'm just yeah. wondering, like, so you don't yeah. have, like, geography classes. Did you have, like, biology or, like, something like that? I, so the thing about North Korea is that not everyone is equal, even though it's a socialist uh, paradise. Right? I mean, it is, they say even it's a socialist. You know, socialist something is like supposed to be make everyone equal, but in North Korea it's not. 
they divide three different uh, categories of groups of status in the in the system, and within that three groups, they also divide into something over fifty groups of different status. So based uh, based on your status, you can be in a top elite school in Pyongyang and learning about biology, like nuclear, you know, biology, all that top elite knowledge. And based on your status, you can't even afford to go to school. In my case, I was able to go to school in the first one or two years, but after that, I couldn't afford to go to school. So that's why, you know, I only had like learned how to read basic Koreans, but, you know, addition and all of that math, I didn't learn. So my case, I didn't, but I'm sure the people in Pyongyang, the people who are elite groups, they learn all of that. And so that's why it's like, it's a very different experience based on your status. The North Korea you experience as a dear leader like Kim Jong-un right now, he went to school in Switzerland. He got the best education in the world you can get. And the people like me who are in the bottom, they are not even able to you know, afford to go to elementary school. Well, it makes sense because it gets easy to control the masses when they don't have basic education. Yeah, so that is a true, like, they don't educate, and not only educating us, but they don't even feed us. They choose to starve us, so that, you know, if you are full in your belly, right, you kind of start thinking about the meaning of life. You're gonna draw arts. You're gonna thinking about all those higher thinkings that humans are capable of doing. But when you're on the verge of, you know, starvation, all you have to worry about is, like, your next meal. Otherwise, you're gonna die. You know, hunger means not just hunger in North Korea. Hunger means death. So people die from hunger most of the time, and they are all they are thinking all day long in their lives. Most of people are just thinking about the next meal so they can survive. And the regime choose to do that. Like um, if you read the Hunger Games, the book, yeah. right? It it divides into thirteen districts, and they are most privileged in the capital and the people in capital have so much food, but the other districts are starving. And it is exactly like North Korea, the people in Pyongyang are in a luxurious, you know, ski resorts and water parks, it's hotels and, you know, high rise buildings. And the people in the countryside are like in the Hunger Games that they are like finding, you know, any food on the street or anywhere. And that's why when people say like, oh, North Korea is great. Like I've been to Pyongyang, it was awesome. And that is not North Korea. Pyongyang is not North Korea. Have you ever visited the capital? Mm -hmm. I had that fortune of visiting the capital. In North Korea, there is no freedom of movement. So even as a North Korean, you cannot just like go to capital. You need a permit. And... I, my father was in a middle class before he was sent to, to prison. So he was able to get the permit and took me to Pyongyang to see it. And when I saw Pyongyang, like, I just couldn't believe that that was North Korea. Like, Pyongyang had, like, running buses. They had, like, uh, 24 hours electricity. Not all the time, but more than the countryside. The people were not dead on the streets. Like, in countryside... My daily like life was seeing dead bodies on the streets. 
that was so normal for me that I didn't think that would that was like um, I did not know that I had to feel sorry for those people because I was born in the middle of the great famine in North Korea and you know as a young girl just first thing I was seeing is those like starved death people on the street and later I you know I went to Pyongyang and came out of North Korea and so the, how other people lived and that was just, I realized oh that was just not normal. You have mentioned a little bit about your father and probably because you lived so close to China, your father trafficked in Chinese made goods on the black market, which helped your family to survive and maybe live a little bit more comfortably. However, at one point, your father was arrested and sent to a forced labor camp. What did it mean to your family? And I mean, not only emotionally, but but in terms of the survival of your family. Yeah, so it is so funny, like he was, you know, like when you say engaging in a black market, often in the West, it's like it means, you know, selling drugs, selling weapons or something, very illicit activities. But in North Korea, back then, black market meant buying sugar, trading clocks, trading, you know, clothes and trading some dried fish. In socialist system, you cannot engage in trading. Right, government is supposed to like ration everyone, right? And the government stopped rationing to the general public in the 90s after Soviet Union collapsed. So people, I mean, if you don't get food government from the government, only option for you is dying from hunger. So my father found a way to get those, you know, clocks, clothes, sugar, rice from China and sold in the black market. And later he uh, sold like silver metals, copper, and that was a crime. And they they punished him and they tortured him. They beat him up and sent him to, you know, prison camp uh, more than 10 years, sentenced him for more than 10 years. And but in the Korean system, when someone commits a crime or becomes a criminal, that doesn't mean only that person being uh, punished all your family being punished. So the, often people say that, right, why there is no revolution in North Korea. And first of all, people don't know they are slaves. So if you don't know you're a slave, you don't, you don't know if you should need to fight for your freedom. But second of all, even if you know you're a slave for some people, if you rise, if you stand up against this tyranny, not only yourself being executed, the three generations of your family being punished. So when my father became a criminal, they would say that my blood was tainted. I wasn't, I didn't have that revolutionary pure blood anymore in their eyes. So that's when I couldn't go to school and my mother was also being harassed by the authority and I had to start living without my parents uh, before I was 10 years old with my own sister who was 11 years old and I you know I had to go to river to wash my clothes go to my mountains to you know find plants and you know like hunting grasshoppers and dragonflies anything you can find in nature to eat and survive at the same time, on the other side of the river, you saw China. 
what kind of impression did you have about the life on the other side of the river when you were struggling so badly? Mm. Yeah, so luckily I was in the part of the northern part, as I said, and we had a river called like Yellow River between North Korea and China. That river divided us from between China and us. It was just a feeling like, you know, that river wasn't even that wide. Just like your fate is so different depending on which side of the river you are born into, right? And I, I from my side of the river, I saw these uh, children in China. They were really, really well fed. And I could this like, so like, you know, yummy smell from China. I could smell these noodles and barbecue they were doing. And they would ask us like across the river, like, hey, are you hungry? And, and, you know, I would get so upset. Those like Chinese kids were mocking me. But and also, you know, at nights I was able to see uh, this like electricity from China. North Korea, if you see, see from the satellite, it, it is like literally the darkest place on Earth. They do not have 24 hours electricity. And it's completely darkness in the outside of Pyongyang, whole North Korea, except Pyongyang. So I saw those lights coming from China and just wondered what would that be, what, what the life would be like in that light, where the lights were. I have read somewhere that you started questioning the regime when you saw the Titanic and you saw, of course, a different life, the Western world, which I assume was portrayed as evil. But you were moved a lot, not only by a luxurious ship, but more by the emotions, love, compassion, these part of emotions that you were not familiar with. I mean, it is like almost like a exaggeration if I started questioning the regime. Like in my mind, back then, it wasn't even a concept. It wasn't even a possibility that I thought uh, you can question the regime, but... I just felt something was very different because until that point, until I saw movie Titanic, the government told, I mean, the regime told us that the Westerners are monsters. You know, they are like cold-blooded uh, monsters. They don't even have the warm blood like us. They rape our women, they kill our children, and they are really brutal people. And when I saw movie Titanic, I mean, you see this man dying for women so selflessly and for love, right? And in North Korean schools, we did not learn about Shakespeare. We don't talk about love. We don't hold the hands like our lovers' hands on the street. The love between men and women is something very, very shameful. And the only love that we are allowed to express is not even to our own children, but it is only for the dear leader and the party. So I just couldn't believe that anyone made a movie out of this such a shameful story. And in my movie, the movies that I saw in North Korea, every movie was about like how people die for the revolution, how people die for the dear leader. And there was never a movie that men can die for love. So that really gave me some like taste of freedom and like humanity and love. 
but still, like it, it was the first time it was like cracking in my propaganda in my mind. But it was never like enough for me to think, oh, my dear leader might be lying or my system might be bad. You know, it just gave me a, such a strange feeling that I never felt anywhere. And I think that seed was planted at that moment, but it was still very, very early stage for me to understand what happened to me and to my people. It's so interesting. It's kind of a mix of being brainwashed and having a fear for the regime, but at the same time, not being in love <laughs> with the regime. It's kind of a mixture of both feelings and something in between. Well, I mean, in the, in the, read the Kim Il song and Kim Jong Il, not as much, but with the first Kim Il song, in, pe in people's heart, actually, they had more love, respect, and that admiration for the first Kim than the fear. But as a regime using more brutal way of controlling people, it became more fear. And right now, all North Korean people have in their heart for Kim Jong-un is fear. But it didn't just start with the fear in the beginning. They did such a master like master like work of brainwashing people. So people like were so honored that they were dying for this greater revolution and this the amazing, you know, leader that they had. So I think for me with the Kim Jong Il, I it wasn't all fear I had. I did also have that warmth and the admiration and all of that. But later you know, as soon as I learned about the dictatorship and the, how they were like enslaving us, it all went away. But the North Korea did not just see the, you know, that fear. I think that's how great they were brainwashing people. And that is what's so remarkable about this regime is that they've been doing this so long and they did such a like, went to the such extreme way. Like if you think about the Georgia West 1984, right? It talks about thought crime, and I think that is the North Korea might be the only place that thought crime was applied. That I was even afraid to think in my mind that I was so afraid that my dear leader was gonna read in my mind if I thought anything bad about the party and the dear leader. I, it was never a concept in my mind that I could do that. Did you know what was going on on these? labor camps, for instance, because we have reports that are always denied by the North Korean regime. But when you were inside, were you and your family aware of the torture and the scope of the tragic things that the regime was doing to its people? I mean, I our my own father was getting tortured. Our own mother was getting tortured, you know. You see, like, people disappear all the time. You see public executions. You, of course, know. You know how you're being treated. Of course, you are. I mean, I did not know the, the complete the degree of the... This, like, there were so many different, like, camps. I did not know where they were exactly. But we all knew that if you questioned the regime, you would go to this place, you would get disappeared. And not only yourself, the three generations of your family got uh, disappeared, all of that. But that doesn't mean that, like, um, that is a thing. Like, do you know the double thing in Georgia West book? It talks about you can hold two contradicting ideas at the same time, mm -hmm. right? 
that is double think in in your mind like oh if you see that people are starving on the streets and people getting executed and disappeared and how do you admire your dear leader at the same time that is our logical mind that has been trained to do critical thinking but when you are born into a country that doesn't teach you the concept of critical thinking, like I had to learn, like someone had to teach me that Kim Jong Il was fat. In North Korea, I believe that my dear leader was starving like all of us. I was my heart broke for him because you know government told us that he was starving like all of us. And someone in South Korea said, like, look at the picture. He is the fattest guy in that picture. How possibly he's starving? And that was like, oh, my God, you're right. He is fat. But until someone told me, I couldn't see that. I couldn't think that way. So in North Korea, of course, you do see the starving children on the street. And you see your own father being arrested. You see only your mother, like, being beat up by the regime. But you also can hold the same time the idea of this admiration and this, uh, you know, omnipresent God that you serve. And I think that is why it is so fictional somehow. That's why so many people are being fascinated with North Korea because no country ever did this to make Georgia West 1984 come true. Well, your sister and you were the first ones who started contemplating the idea of escaping and your sister was the first one who actually escaped and probably you did not have any other choice but to follow her because you did not have any future in North Korea. In 2007 uh, my family became really really hard spot economically we couldn't find food to eat so we had to do something about it and that was really you know only way was going where the lights were so it's like very different thing about North Korean defectors and the other refugees is that we don't have internet in North Korea we don't have the phones that making international phone calls right I, we don't know what's going to happen when we go to the, the other side of the river. It was more like your apartment caught a fire. And whether you stay inside the fire, I mean, apartment to get it and burn to death, or you jump out of the window and see what happens. And that's what we literally did. Uh, my sister, at 16 years old, she escaped with her friend first and initially I wanted to go with her but I couldn't because I just one day I got really really sick stomach and my parents took me to hospital and in North Korea you know there are all there I mean in the countryside at least there's no like x-rays or machines to see what's wrong with you like just literally doctors just rubbed my belly and that afternoon he said like oh I think she got some appendix so they cut my belly open without any painkiller. And they just saw that, oh, I just was so malnutrition and got some infection. And they, you know, closed my stomach back up. And most of the people in the hospital didn't die from like cancer or any of these kind of disease that takes a long time to kill people. Most of them were dying from starvation and infection. And I, there was no guarantee for me to survive, you know, because like literally a nurse using one meter to inject every patient in that 
in that like hospital. That's how how like horrible the situation is, and you see these like bodies were dead uh, on the in front of the hospital on the way to the bathroom, and you see. These rats are eating human eyes first, and you also see these kids are chasing these rats because that is rats are even like luxury food for these starving children, and that's we thought. That's when my mother and thought we did not even know what hell was, but that's when we realized this is a living hell that we had to do anything we can, even if we die, have to get out of this hell. So after my sister escaped, four days later, we also escaped, followed her to China, and but the the reason I mean we didn't even like as I said didn't question why this like a、uh, lady wanted to help me, but it was a human trafficker sold us to Chinese human trafficker to be sold as a sexual slave in China. Your mother was sold into a forced marriage, and your fate was not better. And I think it's just like so, so cruel that these people knew that you did not have any ever alternative. You did not have anywhere where to go, and you could not go back to North Korea. So you just had to agree with whatever they told you. I mean, the thing is that it's not like. We have nowhere to go. We don't even mind in China just eating things from the you know trash bins and just being on the you know street and never have to bother anyone. But they, the regime, the Chinese communist regime, actively searching us and find us. It's like a, in America they were like slave hunters in the in the past, right? When they were slavery, people could get money if you find a hunted slave down. And it was like that. Chinese authority give people money if they hunt North Korean defectors, like we are slaves, and they actively catch us and send us back to North Korea to be tortured, to be cared. So only way for us to live in China is being invisible. But you can't be alone, invisible. You, I mean, if you wanna be alone, you ha- somehow have to find food, right? So for us to be invisible is. Bought by these human traffickers and sent us to Chinese men as a, like wives. I mean, slave wives, and they hide us and they give us food, and that is the only way. And that's how these human traffickers are taking advantage of our very vulnerable situation. So, when my mother and I arrived in China, I was like 13 years old, and the first thing I was seeing in my eyes was my mother was being raped. And they told us afterwards, only way for us to stay in China was being sold like dogs. And they sold my mother for less than hundred dollars, and sold me less than three hundred dollars in this twenty-first century, because I was a virgin and I was young. And yeah, she was sold into forced marriage with a Chinese farmer, and I was bought by another Chinese broker. But he said, and you know, I was thirteen. I couldn't take the shame. I was, I wanted to kill myself. But this human trafficker said, if I become his、uh, mistress, he would bring my family to me, 
and I thought if I sacrifice sacrifice myself that I can save my family. So I did become his his mistress, and he bought my mom back from the farmer, and he brought my sick father from North Korea. But we couldn't find my sister back then, and that's how I got reunited with my family in China. Write a review, and then you can share it with the world in any social media platform. And then your friends see it, and you can share and discover new shows together. This is Steph, instigator of Pod Rev Day Podcast Review Day, and I'm Andy from Inspired Money. And I'm Arielle of Earbuds Podcast Collective and Castbox. We're here to tell you everything you need to know about Pod Rev Day, which is on the eighth of every month of every year of every century of every. You get it. We are posting podcast reviews as part of hashtag Pod Rev Day Podcast Review Day because podcasters work their butts off and deserve to know how much they've impacted your lives, and you can do that through reviews. Even one star feels surprisingly <laughs> good. Does it? It lets you know that people are at least listening. Don't be a passive podcast listener. Write a review and tell your favorite creator what you love about their podcast or about a specific episode. And to participate, you just need to do one review. And we'll see you every eighth of the month. Pod Rev Day, because podcasters deserve to hear it. Hashtag Pod Rev Day. P O D R E V D A Y. You can always review or rate the I Bounce Back podcast and our episodes on all major podcasting platforms. Also, don't forget to visit our website, ibounceback.net. Just before the break, today's guest, Yeonmi Park, talked about her escape from North Korea to China. It took her two years to reach freedom in South Korea, and these two years were incredibly hard and painful. But Yeonmi has never lost her strength and her will to survive. You know, I think in life, when you go through something that unreal, right? You, what you do is really not really just. I mean, often people think, "Oh, I'm sure you know now how to survive," right? But I think what you do really learn is like what it means to be a human, and the people who made my country that way was human beings, and I was a human, right? Like when you read the book by the Victor Frankl, the who wrote the Man Searching for Meaning, and he often think about that, right? The all these cars were humans, and the inmates were humans. How on this earth we can do this to each other? But uh, the men who raped me, I mean, they were humans, they were like men, but the man also who dearly loved me was my father and himself was a man. So you lose your faith in humanity for sure, but you also recover your humanity from the people who loves you, like my parents and who showed kindness through my journey. And also you learn that in the face of death, the humans have the strongest force that you're never going to see unless you are on the verge of death. And that's how strong we are. We are so strong that, you know, you might not be able to move the mountains in one day, but we can eventually if that's how strong is our will to survive. <laughs> 
So I think it was really all a combination of luck that I was so lucky. I met the right people and also I was so lucky that I had my father who taught me that life was gift, gift that I had to fight for, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I think that lesson uh, kept me going and fighting for my life, my freedom and fighting for my family. And now I'm fighting for my like people in North Korea. So, you know, it was just a, but in most of all, I was really lucky. So many people who were stronger than me, who had an even stronger will to survive, but they didn't make it. Not because they didn't fight harder, but because they weren't just lucky. But my case, I just had, I, even in that moment, I did have meet people who were kind to me. And I think, and that those people, you know, helped me to recover my faith in humanity. Eventually, you found a way to leave China. You had to cross the border to Mongolia, but it wasn't a walk in the park as well. You had to cross the Gobi Desert. Can you tell about how you managed to leave China, escape from the situation you were held into? And what was your journey to Mongolia? Yeah, so by the after two years of being slave to this man, uh, I was 15, year, 15 years old. That was right after Beijing Olympic in 2008. And this was 2009. Uh, by this time, my father already passed away from the sickness he got in the prison camp. And I was left again with my own mother. And the broker who bought me, Somehow, as I said, you know, this is how just is humans are not like black and white. He did have some kindness in his heart and he would let me go. And I we met a North Korean lady who was also hiding in China like us. She said to me that if we go to South Korea, she said we can be free. And this is the first time I heard the word free. So I literally asked her like, what do you mean I'm gonna be free? And she said, oh, you can like wear jeans, you can watch movies, and no one gonna arrest you for that. And in North Korea, people get arrested for wearing jeans and watching movies, like Hollywood movies. So I thought, wow, that sounds really cool. I'm gonna like risk my life for that. And that, and they all missionaries from South Korea were helping us, and they told us that if we go to a Gobi, cross the Gobi Desert from Mongolia and China to Mongolia, from you know following a north and west direction, he said you know after we uh, you know pass the eight wire fences, that will be Mongolia, and we had to get captured the Mongolian soldiers not by the Chinese and tell them that we want to go to South Korea. Luckily, we didn't didn't die from the cold in desert because in desert it can get to like up to minus 40 degrees at night because there's no no mountain, nothing blocks this air and Mongolia is extremely cold. And we were able to get caught by the Mongolian guards. And a few months later, they sent us to South Korea. So that is how I became free, uh, following that northern star in that desert, and that led me to freedom. So you didn't have any compass or, I don't know, GPS? Oh, no, no GPS. We did have a compass initially, 
but in the middle of desert at night, you know, if you use like a flashlight, you it, it gives a signal so far away to anyone, you know, like lights lights can like travel so far. So we couldn't like use a compass. It, it got really, really dark in the middle of night. So only thing I could see was stars in the sky. And there was a really bright northern star. And I told my mom, like, let's follow that star. And that did that star did lead me to the north and it led to us to Mongolian Mongolian soldiers. Can you remember the day when you finally got the airplane tickets to South Korea? Well, I mean, we didn't get the t- we, I, we did not do any process. It was a South Korean government who was doing it. But it was also, you know, it was really mission plan. We did not fly as like even refugees. They got us uh, a passport that was wasn't real pa- I mean, that was a real passport. It was like very, it, it wasn't like our names on there. And we had to very quickly get into airplane. It was 2009, uh, April 20th, I remember, because that was um, my second birthday. My birthday, I was born to this earth in October 4th, in 1993. But when I really truly became a human was, you know, that April 20th of 2009, I I became the master of my own life. When I was born into North Korean regime, you know, I wasn't, I didn't own myself. I was owned by the state. They, they had a control over me, even what I wear, what haircut I get, what kind of songs that I sing. I did not have freedom over anything. I couldn't decide even the minor thing the government told me what my favorite color was. They told me that my favorite color was uh, red because it's a revolutionary color. And when I got to South Korea, people asked me my what's my favorite color, and I did not know because in North Korea, what I thought never mattered, and no one asked me what I thought. So how much time did it take for you to really feel comfortable and free? Well, I do think even now I'm like learning the meaning of freedom, you know, it is what it means to be free and what it means to live in the free society and what are the obligation to be free. And but when I became comfortable, just like with the choices that you are facing, it took quite many, many years, you know, in the like in South Korea, when I got there, they said, Oh, what you want to be in the future. In North Korea, what I had to be in the future was determined by the government even before I was born, depended on my grandfather's status in the like system. So I never had to think like, what I am I good at? What do I want to do? How do I want to live my life? It, it was never a, a question for me, but certainly in South Korea, they said, you know, what do you want to be? Do you want to go to school? Do you want to work? What do you want to do? And that was so scary because they depended on my choice that I had to be responsible to the like you know the consequences of that choice, right? And that was so scary that I had to be you know responsible that much. So it took really long time for me to practice and really enjoy that choices that I, I was given. What was the most surprising to you when you reached South Korea? You, because you had to do a lot of catch up. Yeah, I mean, like, 
I mean, how to even order drinks and the coffee shop? Like, I never drank coffee in my life. I never drank tea, right? What's like peppermint tea? What's Americano is? What's uh, how to even watch a movie in the movie theaters? How to use like a machine to get the tickets out? And knowing what is credit card or debit card is in North Korea, we don't use the banks. We use just cash. You know, we don't have any like 24 hours electricity and banks. If you put the money, they just steal your money and don't give your back money back. So I never been to bank. And people say like here you have to use these cars. You don't carry cash. And like you know the idea, the concept of credit card. It took many years for me to understand. But not only that, like you know how to take a bus, how to take a subway, even like. Even that really basic things was a very difficult for me to learn, and you know, like also like how to use Google, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was also very like how they had to teach me from how to turning on the computer and how to turn it off computer. For the someone like coming from different planet, even turning off the computer was so difficult, right? Turning on was easy to put the switch on, but like you have to click different things to turn it off. <laughs> That's so yeah. funny and surprising. Um, but you started working in the TV show, which was talking about the Nor- about North Korea, and of course, you started talking about your experience, and you appeared under the North Korean ra- radar, and you were in danger again. I think. Um... I mean, it was very clear the South Korean intelligence. The detectives told me I became on the target list of the regime. And North Korean regime uh, officially uh, threatened my publisher Penguin to not to publish my book, and they say if they do, they're gonna blow it up, like they did to the Sony when the Sony made a movie about the dear leader dying, like interview. Do you remember? The Sony made a joke movie about yeah. North Korea, and the North Korea hacked them and said like any movie theater like plays this movie, they're gonna blow them up. So Obama had to come out saying, like, we don't listen to dictator. We have the freedom of speech in this country. So it was like that. North Korea was talking to, you know, threatening Penguin publicly. And not only that, they uh, captured three generations of my family back in North Korea. Uh, and then they, they made them to denounce me uh, on the video. And after that, they all disappeared. So I don't know if they have been executed or sent to prison camp. Wow. That was a price I had to pay. I didn't pay. I guess my relatives had to pay for me to have a voice right now and talking to you. Um, this is so, so sad. And the North Korean regime has referred to you as a propaganda puppet. How does that make you feel? I mean, you know, I'm a human scum, and it it's it is not like a, almost, you know. I mean, I guess what one thing gives me the hope is that I am being effective, right? You don't want to do the things that dictator likes. You gotta do what they don't like. That means I am harming the regime. So that does give me some kind of a pride, but. You know, I do know that, I mean, Kim Jong-un was killing his own uncle with the aircraft. He was assassinating his half-brother in Malaysian airport. 
he obviously does not care what the international community thinks of him. So if he decides, he can kill me any second, you know. So it does give me cheers a lot of times, like especially when I go to conferences and like, I don't know who's there, might be a spy, I don't know. When I walk to my hotel by myself, I don't know who might be waiting there because a lot of defectors got assassinated in South Korea and China. So, you know, my life is almost a, a, a gamble. <laughs> But, you know, it was very hard for me to be free and be who I am today. And I wouldn't just live my life for my own sake of safety. I do want to, you know, when, as you said, right, when you're going through something so, so unreal that you do start the question, why did I survive? What is the meaning of my life? Why didn't others make it, right? And I do think... I somehow want to believe that there was a purpose why I survived and not others. And I want to, you know, use that purpose to be that I help others and for them to be free like me. I found it pretty interesting that in your book you wrote that you are grateful that you were born in North Korea. Can you explain why? When you never seen a darkness you are never gonna recognize a light if you all your life been in light you are not gonna really appreciate that light as much i'm sure some people can do it and someone who has been in that dark valley in that complete darkness when you become in the light you will know the value of that light and to me that light is freedom all your life you're in freedom it's like the fish does not realize they're in the water they hold their life there, being in the water. And, and believe it or not, actually the most of the world right now are not in freedom. Most of us are not free. At least over like 4 billion people are living in dictatorship and authoritarian governments. They do not have the freedom that you and I have here. And But when you are born into freedom and like to to this comfort, it can be a bubble for you. You think this is how everyone live their life. And, you know, when I went to New York City, I was so shocked because my um, my publisher told me, like, Yeonmi, you have been traumatized. You have to go to therapy. And I was like, I was like, what do you mean therapy? And she said, like, oh, here people go through something difficult, even not going through difficult, they go to therapy. And I asked, like, how much is it? It was really expensive. And I was so shocked, like, how on earth you go through that much and then later you become so bitter about it, right? Then why did you even survive it? Back then, I didn't have the compassion to fear, to share the struggle that people had in this free world, right? I thought struggle that I saw was the real struggle and the struggle people here had was not the real one. And I really learned that struggle here in this world is a real one and it is a really difficult one now. But I think because I I didn't experience this two world, I wasn't able to connect the bridge and be compassionate to both worlds. And I, I think that is my goal that hopefully I can become the bridge between North Korea and the world so you know when they when we meet you know we can like recognize that we, we are one humanity 
and that our job is to take care of each other and help each other and that's you know that's what I think is that like imagine if none of us free in this world right now like who will fight for us who will fight for our rights and freedom like animals obviously are not fight for our rights and freedom I mean machines not gonna do it you know that is why it is very important for our sake for our children's sake as free people that we need to fight for others so when we are not free, they're gonna fight for us instead. It's almost like we buying an insurance. And that's why it's not like an option for us to care about human rights and freedom. It is our duty as a free people to fight for it. Today you live in the United States. Uh, your family lives in South Korea. You know the taste of freedom. And how are you doing today and what is your, and how would you say what is your purpose today? Oh, well, I mean, it is a tough time. It is, I mean, we are in this corona pandemic. Um, but I am in general very happy and so grateful. And, you know, of course, I do still have a lot of nightmares and the trauma does follow me. But it, you know, whenever that happens, it does remind me that, you know, I should not take for today granted. And, and, it is, you know, I think that's the thing, no matter what I do, I have to be grateful and happy because, um, you know, so many people are fighting and they, they, they can't even dream of what we have here. So I do try my best to be happy, for sure. That was a truly inspiring story. Thank you, Yeonmi Park, a human rights activist who is working so hard to tell the world about the sufferings in North Korea and the brutality of the regime. Before the end of our conversation, as very often in the show, I ask Yeonmi to complete a few incomplete sentences. Here is what she had to say. So the first sentence is, my journey to freedom has taught me Resilience. One thing I would tell to my younger self. Keep fighting. One thing I'm most proud of myself. Being me. <laughs> and finally, my next big challenge is. Taking down Kim Jong-un. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I live for right now. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yep. Thank you for your support. This is all that I have prepared for you today. Tune in to the I Bounce Back podcast for a new episode next month on the 7th of October. The binge eating disorder was an inability to just be with myself and love myself and nourish myself in a calm and relaxed way. So food was still always a way to escape feelings. It's a way to punish myself and then go, go numb. I'll see you in two weeks. Stay safe. Bye.